All right, so I'd like to, uh, for, oh, first of all, let's remember all those uh, people that are dealing with uh, the hurricane coming through the, the southern part of Alabama and that region there. Please pray for that. I think we've got some weather right now of that, and that's why we're missing a few people. Please pray for that. I, wanna, I didn't want to skip over that. It's very important for us to be praying about. But As we get started tonight on our study of Hebrews, I'd like to remind everyone uh, who may not have been here last week or who uh, may... I'm having a slide problem there. Uh, Russ or uh, whoever's back there. Uh, yeah, all right, there we go. All right, we're good. Last week we talked about how Jesus is better than the angels. It was a very deep study. It was a very uh, uh, fast study. I felt like uh, you guys were drinking out of a fire hydrant for a minute there as I tried to get through almost two chapters of the book of Hebrews. I'm sorry about that. I just wanted to get through with the angels so we could get on to something else. But last week we discussed the significance that angels had in the first century Jewish culture uh, and how at the end of the day Jesus is better than, greater than, superior to all of the angels. If you remember chapter 1, it had a bunch of quotations. If you open up your Bible, you can just look at this. A bunch of quotations from the Old Testament, and what we saw there in chapter 1 is that the Hebrews writer is establishing the biblical groundwork and foundation as to why Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, we talked about all the quote, quotations that have been reappropriated to apply to Jesus. And uh, from that we learn that Jesus is better than the angels because uh, His name is greater. Because He is worshipped by the angels. He is served by the angels. He is God. He is Creator. He is Eternal. He is Lord. And we learn all of that from chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, if you remember. And a lot of these same points are going to continue to be made as He progresses to another individual or another group of people or another part of our study in the book of Hebrews. Uh, he's very repetitive, but it's very effective uh, in his writing in this book. In chapter 2, so chapter 1 was the biblical found, uh, foundation, the biblical groundwork. Chapter 2 was the theological groundwork and the theological uh, basis as to why Jesus is better than the angels. And uh, we talked about how Jesus is better than the angels uh, because God has put everything into his subjection. Every single thing on heaven and on earth has been put into the subjection of Jesus Christ. Uh, why? Why was everything put into Jesus' subjection? Well, it's because He took on the form of the people He was saving. On the seed of Abraham, the Bible says there in Hebrews, right? And He suffered pain and death. That He suffered agony. That He suffered temptation. That He defeated evil. That He destroyed Satan. And why does He say He did it? It says he did it because he wanted to bring many sons to glory. Verses 9 and 10, right? He wanted to bring many sons to glory. What a great message that is. But the question is, at the end of the study last week, is could an angel do all of that? No. Has an angel done all of that? Well, no. And so therefore, obviously, Jesus is better than, greater than, superior to all the angels that have ever come. Uh, now, before we get into our study tonight, let's remember our purpose of the book of Hebrews itself. Uh, we've talked about this every single week, but it's very important for us to remember that the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to be placing side by side the Old Testament law and the New Testament law, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he's going to be comparing and proclaiming out loud as blatantly, as loudly, as obvious as he possibly can that the new law is better, that the new covenant is better, that Jesus is greater, He is better, and He is superior to the old law. There's no comparison to be made. And why? And what is He going to try to do with them as, fir as first readers and with us, right? We went over two different C's last week. He's both trying to convince and He's trying to convict. And he does that very well as he writes this book, and it should convince all of us who have not become Christians to want to become a Christian. And it should also convict those of us who have become Christians that we made the right choice. 
So that's what we talked about last week, and tonight we're going to be covering chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews as we get started tonight. I'm very excited about this study. Uh, we're going to be looking at how the author is going to try to convince us and convict us that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. Well, you know, a lot of people during this study have, have heard me talk about how Jesus is better than the prophets. Well, duh. Jesus is better than the angels. Well, duh. And now we're mentioning uh, Jesus is better than the Moses. And a lot of people are saying, well, duh. You know, I uh, see a lot of smiles because it almost gets redundant, but that's what the book's about. And it's a great message for us to listen to, and we can get a lot of lessons from it. And I hope we start to see, you know, a pattern developing within the book of Hebrews already at the beginning stages of our study in week three here, that the writer of Hebrews is, is literally trying to, uh, he's attempting to dismantle really every single facet of the Old Testament law. Not making it uh, of no good value, not making it like it was useless, but he's trying to say, he's trying to make it inferior to the new law, to the new covenant, to Jesus, right? That's exactly what he's trying to do. I mean, look, the first week we talked about how he's better than the prophets, how he's better than the angels last week. This week it's about he's better than Moses. Next week it's going to be he provides a better rest than the rest that Joshua provided, right? And then the week after that we're going to talk about how he's better than Aaron and, and Melchizedek and the priesthood, right? And then all throughout the book of Hebrews we're going to learn how Jesus and the new covenant is better than all the things that we find in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. The list can go on and on, and uh, this is just a few of the things that the writer exposes when it comes to this comparison that's made. Uh, but tonight, though, we're going to focus in on this one section in chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3, that Jesus is indeed better than Moses. That's what we're going to be zeroing, zeroing in on, and uh, the focal point of the Jewish faith is who? Right? You know, some would say Abraham, right? Abraham is Father Abraham. But who is really the, the focal point, the beginning parts of the old law? Well, that would have to be Moses. Moses is uh, the focal point, really, of the Jewish faith, and we're going to talk about why that is. You know, when it comes to the old law, who do they call it? Do they call it the law of Abraham? No. Do they call it the law of David? No. Who are they? Abraham is, right, the, the, the seed through which the whole earth was blessed, the beginning points of the patriarchal age that uh, God chose Abraham to, to put his entire nation through, right? He's a great and, and, and great man. But he's not, it's not called the law of Abraham, is it? Who is David? David is the great king, right? He, he, he did great and wonderful things. He's a man after God's own heart. He, he killed a giant and all the things we know about, but does they call it the law of David? No. Now you know where we're going with this. They call it the law of Moses, do they not? It is called the law of Moses for a reason. In fact, you can see that Jesus even called it the law of Moses in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. This is what Jesus had to say. He said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So how does Jesus signify the Old Testament? He doesn't give Abraham or David any light there. He says, The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's how Jesus looked at the Old Testament as well. The old law is attributed to Moses, and last week we studied, you know, obviously last week we mentioned how the angels mediated the law, right? We learned about how the angels were those who helped mediate the law. Uh, Acts 7.53 talks about that. Uh, obviously we know that it was God who gave the Ten Commandments, was it not? It was God who gave the Ten Commandments, and then guess what? He goes down the mountain and they're worshiping 
uh, idols, and so he has to go back up the mountain, and then he makes them himself, right? He remembers what God wrote, and so he, he does it on the second pair of stones. But God was the one who gave the commandments, so why is it not the law of God? Why was it not viewed as the law of God? You know, some people would say that, and some passages do say the law of God, but a lot of them, most of them do say the law of Moses. Why is that? God gave the Ten Commandments. Who, who gave the other 600-plus commandments of the Old Testament? Well, that was God. So why, indeed, is it called the law of Moses? We're going to talk about that in a second. But, however, you know, throughout the Old Testament, into the New Testament, Moses is the figure to which the old law is attributed to. You know, in the, in the whole New Testament, we're going to find many quotations that say, As Moses said to you, well, was it Moses saying it to them or was it God? It was God, but Moses gets this, you know, uncredited favor in the New Testament. Why is that? They also say, as Moses commanded you. We look, I looked, search, researching all of this, there's so many verses that say it and phrase it that way. But why is that? Why is so much attributed to this one man? Why is Moses the one that gets all of this credit? Well, you know, it's pretty obvious as to why, in my opinion. Humankind likes to have a certain individual to give the credit. That's why we talked about the author of Hebrews. We want to find the author. We want to find the author. We want to find to where we can attribute this great work to someone. Moses was the physical representation of all the great wonders that God did through the Exodus and through all of the Pentateuch, right? Moses is the focal point of all the things that were done. He was the one that was lifting the rod. He, but obviously it was God doing it, but for the people's vantage point, it was Moses. Moses was the one who came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets in his hands and threw it down at him, right? Moses was the one who led the Israelites through the wilderness. Moses was the one who executed the law, right? Moses was the one who carried out the law. He was the one who wrote the Torah or, or the Pentateuch, right? Moses was the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, so Moses was held in the highest regard. When you look at the Jewish culture and in the Jewish society of the first century especially, Moses was at the highest regard. You know, that's regardless of whether he was that way when in the actual daily life of the Israelites in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers and all the way. They didn't look at him that way then, did they? No, but they do years after his life. He was well appreciated after his time, right? Some, sometimes that happens. People aren't appreciated in their own time until they're gone, and then you really appreciate them. That's what happened to Moses here. Uh, but there's a lot of comparisons that we want to make between Moses and Jesus. Obviously, there's a lot of comparisons. I'm just going to list a few, uh, but there's obviously a whole lot more that we could talk about. When we look at Moses and when we look at Jesus, obviously both of them were faithful. Right? Both of them were faithful. We're going to read that here in a minute in the book of Hebrews itself. But we see that both of them were faithful. We see also that both of them were lawgivers. Both of them were givers of the law. What is the Old Testament called? The law of Moses. What is the New Testament called? The law of Christ. Right? Both of them were deliverers. They went and delivered their people out of bondage. Jesus delivered us out of our sinful bondage. And Moses delivered the people, the Hebrew people, out of Egyptian bondage, right? Both of them were, were, did wonderful signs and miracles and were miracle workers. And then also, both of them were sent by God the Father. Both of them were commissioned uh, and especially interesting, after a very long period of silence from God. We look at uh, the different, we're going to talk about this, I guess, in the Ministers of the Roundtable study. The difference between Genesis and Exodus is 400 years. What's the difference between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years. And so here we have two examples of these people who are being sent by God the Father 
after a long period of silence. This, so, there's so many different uh, things you look at. Uh, Moses was, uh, there was a decree that all the children should die when Moses' age. And guess what happened when Jesus was born? There was a decree that all the children should die, right? So there's a lot of comparisons, and that's just scratching the surface on all the things that Jesus and Moses have in common. But with that background and foundation of why the writer of Hebrews is mentioning Moses, we're ready to get into the text itself in Hebrews chapter 3. And Jesus is better than Moses. We're going to go ahead and start in verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. I'm going to leave the passage up there on the screen each time we stop, and you can just continue reading and thinking on that as we talk. But here the writer of Hebrews is addressing to the readers, what does he call them? What does he call the readers of this book? You know, this is one of the first times we get an indication on, on who he's talking to. He's talking to brethren. He says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So he's talking to, in, in this section to the people who need to be convicted. Who need to be convicted of their faith that Jesus Christ is better find that interesting that he's talking to them as if they are holy brethren. Why do they need this message if they are holy brethren? If they're holy brethren, they should know that Jesus is better than. But the text continues. He says that uh, they are partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers of the heavenly calling. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit later in this text what else we need to be partakers in. But then he goes on and he says that they are remembering the apostle. Right? The, consider, remember the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, this word apostle has really thrown some kink into the works for a lot of people over the years. What is going on here? Jesus is an apostle? No, he had apostles. What's happening here? Well, We've got to understand what the word apostle means. The word apostle is from the Greek apostolos. And it means simply apostle, but when you look at the meaning of the term itself, is one who is sent, one who is commissioned. Peter, James, John, all these individuals were sent by Jesus. They were commissioned by Jesus, right? Well, who sent, who commissioned Jesus? Well, that would be God the Father. Jesus was sent out. He was commissioned to fulfill the Father's will. You just look at the beginning of the book in Hebrews chapter 1, we can see that God has spoken in time past by the prophets, but as in these last days, spoken to us by His Son, through His Son. That indicates that He has been sent to speak a message to us. And more than that, Jesus was sent and commissioned by the Father to carry out His will, and we can see that in John chapter 20 and verse 21. Jesus himself says with his own mouth, As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Therefore, we can see that Jesus is obviously an apostle in this sense of the word. Jesus was sent and he was commissioned. But what does the, Hebrew, the Hebrews writer say about this apostle? What does he say about Jesus in this passage here? He says that, that Jesus is the one that has been appointed by God, that he was faithful in all of his house. What does it mean to be faithful in all of his house? You know, that's a weird phraseology. I don't really, the first time I read it, I didn't know what an all his house meant. But when we look at this all of his house, this refers to all of God's people. All of God's people. He was faithful in front of all of God's people. He, in all matters of faith, in all matters of life, he was faithful. And not only was he faithful, he was faithful in front of God's people. And here in this passage, we're also going to see that uh, Jesus is rendered as a high priest. This is going to be a big theme in a couple of weeks in chapters 5 and 7. We'll get to that then. But we see that Jesus is not only apostle, he is high priest, he is appointed... And he is faithful. 
But, but we're going to look at the whole high priest thing in a little bit later. You know, when we think of this idea of, of being faithful in all the house, who else was faithful in all the house? In all their house? In all the house of God? Moses. If you were to flip back to Numbers chapter 12, you can look at this situation with Miriam. Miriam calls him out for marrying this Ethiopian woman. Says he shouldn't have done that. And then God gives her leprosy over it, does he not? He punishes her for calling Moses out. How dare you call my servant Moses out? And in verse 7, what does he say? Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So here we're already starting to see this comparison be made between Jesus and Moses in the book of Hebrews because both of them were faithful in all of God's house. But the text continues in verses 3 and 4, and it says, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. The author of Hebrews is trying to make the point that he has already made about the prophets, He's already made about the angels in that Jesus Christ is better than them because He created them. He is creator, they are created, right? He's already made this point a few times and He's making it yet again. He's trying to say Jesus is better than, greater than, superior to Moses because even though Moses was faithful in all of his house, Jesus was the one who made the house. You see what's happening here in the text. Jesus is the one who made the house. Moses was simply faithful in someone else's house. So therefore, Jesus is obviously better than. This is a classic argument that we see through Scripture. That God is greater than man because God created man. Our world doesn't want to think that, do they? They want to think that we're equal to that. We can do whatever we want. But obviously the one that is created is less than the one who created in the first place. The creator is greater than the created. The maker is greater than, than the made. And that's the point he's making here. In fact, he explicitly writes, what does he say? That this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory. This goes back to our point of the entire class, right? That Jesus is better than. This is the better letter. Jesus deserves, he is worthy of more glory than Moses. And you got to think about the readers of this book. They're looking at this book and they're reading about Moses and all of a sudden they say, Jesus is better than, worthy of more glory than Moses? Could have been blasphemous to some of the Jewish people of that day in the first century how dare you say that about Moses Moses is the 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 celebrity of them all how dare you say that but here the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is way better he's worthy of more glory and the text continues in verses 5 and 6 it says "And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which will be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What is the writer doing here in this passage? I don't think the writer's trying to downgrade Moses at all, is he? I don't think he's trying to say that Moses was meaningless, Moses was useless, Moses didn't play a role. He's not trying to say any of that. He's simply trying to say he is inferior to Jesus. That Jesus is superior to him. He is trying to elevate, he is trying to exalt Jesus. I think that's why he starts out by saying, Moses indeed was faithful. Moses was faithful. He's not trying to detract from Moses. It's almost like he's saying, you know, don't get me wrong. Don't don't get me wrong, readers. Uh, Moses was an awesome guy. Moses was an awesome guy. He did a lot of great things. But come on now, when it comes to comparing him to Jesus, you've got to see that there's no comparison to be made. That's the Ben version. 
That's exactly what he's saying here. Moses was indeed faithful, but Christ. And why is that? We see that we see the comparison here in this passage. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ as a son. We see that Jesus is the Son of God, and He is God over His own house. Not someone else's house, but His own house. Notice the comparison being made between Moses and Jesus here. You know, in verse 4 we see, look at verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, we see Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Verse 6 says, Jesus was faithful as a son over his own house. We see the superiority implied there. To see it, we really have to talk about uh, the difference between servant and son. You know, when we look at the word servant here, most of the time that we look in the New Testament, for those of us who know Greek, we see that most of the time the word servant is the word doulos. Doulos. And that word means slave. A slave. Most of the writers say that they are bond servants of Christ. Slaves of Christ. But that's not the word used here, actually. In fact, we see a word used here that's not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. And it's the word thereupon. And the only use of it in the entire New Testament is used to talk about Moses. We're not trying to downgrade Moses as some meaningless, you know, non-useful person. He gets his own special word here that no one else gets to be called a thereupon, which means special servant. Special servant. And what can we learn from that? This servant versus son discussion. We can learn that Moses was obviously special. Moses was obviously important. Moses was the one that God spoke face to face. Look at Numbers 12, verse 8. It says, God says, I speak with him face to face, not in these visions and riddles, in dark sayings. I speak with Moses face to face, he says. Moses was obviously special, but when placed beside Jesus, he will never measure up. Why will Moses never measure up? Because it doesn't matter how special of a servant he was, it will never match the status that Jesus has as a son. The servant will never be the son. What a great message that is, that Jesus Christ is the son of his own house. Jesus Christ is superior to Moses because Moses was a servant and Jesus was a son. Now the text continues in verses 7 through 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. So what's the Hebrews writer trying to do in this section? Well, he's going to use a quote, a passage from Psalm 95. You can go there and look at that. In Psalm 95, this same passage is used. And this is going to be warning them that they're about to start reacting the same exact way to Jesus as the Israelites reacted to Moses. What do you mean? Well, he's saying that the same way the Israelites hardened their hearts, the same way the Israelites tried me, tested me, you are about to try and test Jesus? 
The better apostle? The better high priest? The better savior? The better redeemer? And he goes and talks about that. We know exactly how the Israelites treated Moses, don't we? They complained. They grumbled. They, they groaned. They, they did all the things that uh, we read about in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and all the things that they did. They complained until they were blue in the face, right? Well, some of us and some of the readers of the book of Hebrews obviously were guilty of the same. We see that the Israelites for 40 years complained, they contested, they argued, they didn't appreciate Moses, did they? They even disobeyed him, they rebelled against him many times. And that's exactly what he's trying to relate to the readers of the book of Hebrews. Look at the list of things that it says that they did. It says that they hardened their hearts, that they rebelled that they tested God, that they tried God, that they went astray, that they did not know God. And what was the result for them? Because of this, they were not able to enter the promised land. They were not able to enter into the rest, it says. God swore in His wrath that they will not enter into my rest because of the things that they did. So I think the writer is laying a foundation that Jesus is the greater apostle. He's the greater one who has been commissioned. He is greater than Moses. He has a greater faithfulness. He has a greater name. But even though he is greater and even though it's obvious, there will still be those who harden their hearts. There will still be those who rebel there will still be those who test Him. There will still be those who try Him. There will still be those who go astray. And there will still be those who will not know Him. And because of that, they will not be able to enter into the rest of heaven. The same correlation could be made of us. I mean, look what he says. Beware, brethren, in verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The writer is trying to say that if you do not cling to Jesus... If you do not take Jesus and place Him above any other figure, any other person, any other thing, then you will be actively departing, separating yourself from the living God. Let's talk about this exhort one another daily while it is still called the day. What a great message that is, right? You know, a lot of times we want to, I really need to talk to that guy. You know, I, that guy... He's straying away. That girl, she's straying away. We really need to talk to them. We really need to do something about this. But then what happens? Week goes by. Month goes by. They haven't been at church. They haven't been at worship or Bible class. You see their social media. They're doing this, that, and the other. Totally lost. Because you didn't go and talk to them while it is still called today. The best time to approach someone is today. The best time to approach someone and talk to them and exhort one another is today. Because, well, as we know, tomorrow may be too late. It's time to quit putting it off. It's time to exhort each other in today. And the writer is going to fully explain what he's really trying to say in this next section of the text in verses 14 through 19. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was He angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Here the author is going to yet again give this idea of, of rebellion. 
He's going to go back again to Psalm 95 and use this exact same quote he just used a column earlier, right? He's repetitive, but he's effective. Then he's going to ask the questions that he asked. These, these uh, what's the word when you ask a question you don't expect an answer to? Rhetorical. There it is. Somebody smart. Rhetorical questions. He's going to ask all these rhetorical questions that there's an obvious answer to. He's going to ask, who was the one that God was angry at? Well, that would be the Israelites. He's going to ask, who were the ones that rebelled? That would be the Israelites. He's going to ask, who are the corpses who fell in the wilderness? Well, that would be the Israelites. Who was the one that God was angry at? Who was the one that was dying in the wilderness? Who was the one who's not able to enter into the rest? Who were the ones that weren't able to obey? Well, that would be the Israelites. And ultimately, why does he say that they did not obey? Because they did not believe. Listen, the ultimate question that is being asked here, the writer, the, the readers are being asked this huge questions. But the ultimate question is, are you going to be like the Israelites? Are you going to be like the Israelites in the wilderness who rebelled? Are you going to be like the Israelites who God was angry at? Are you going to be like the Israelites who were the ones dying in the wilderness, who were the spiritual corpses in the New Covenant? The same way the, 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 the Israelites died in the wilderness and there were corpses physically, in the New Covenant you can be in the wilderness and die spiritually and your corpse be lying on the ground. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to ask, are we going to be the ones that aren't allowed to, open, to enter into the rest of heaven? The spiritual rest that resides only in heaven above. I think he's saying because if we don't believe Jesus, if we don't obey Jesus, this better person than Moses, if we don't do that, then we are no greater than the Israelites who came before him. We are no greater than the Israelites who did not believe, did not obey in the time of Moses. I think that's the takeaway for the original reader, the original audience of this text in Hebrews chapter 3. That Moses was an apostle to the nation of Israel. But Jesus is the apostle to all nations. We see also that Moses was not even a high priest, but Jesus is a great high priest. We see Moses was a special servant, but Jesus was the Son of God. We see Moses was a man, but Jesus is God. We see Moses was creator, but Jesus is the creator. Excuse me, Moses was the created, and Jesus is the creator. We also see that Moses was finite and Jesus was infinite. Moses was sinful, but Jesus was sinless. And the list goes on and on. And therefore, because of that, because of all the things that have been said and listed and, and, and called out, because of that, Jesus, the text says in verse 3, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. More glory than the one for whom the entire old law is named, the law of Moses. Jesus is better. I mean, we think about the Mount of Transfiguration. You think about that uh, experience there in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, we see this, this great experience that uh, Jesus is before all of the inner circle, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then all of a sudden, they wake up from a dream, and there's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured on the mount. What's the message of that entire story? Peter says, hey, we're going to erect a temple in the name of Elijah, in the name of Moses, and in the name of Jesus, right here on this spot. We need to, we need to commemorate this great experience, this great day. It'll be told about for generations. And what does Jesus do? What does God the Father do? He rains down, He booms down that voice from above 
This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. What is God doing there? Is He trying to belittle Elijah and Moses? No. He's trying to exalt His Son who is above them. Just think of the message there. you got one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament and one of the greatest leaders of the Old Testament right there in front of Jesus. And Peter goes, hey, they're all in equal circumstances. And God says, no, 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 no. Not even close. Not even close. Jesus is my son, and he is the one that I am well pleased by. So what? that's the application for the original reader, that Jesus is superior to Moses, so let's quit following Moses. Well, what's the application? What is the message for us tonight? What is the takeaway that we can take away 2,000 years later? 2,000 years separated from this first century Jewish culture that was so infatuated with Moses. Are we infatuated with Moses? No, maybe if we wrote this today, it'd be about Paul. You know, we're so infatuated with Paul that we forget about Jesus. But 2,000 years later, separated from this first century Jewish culture, what can we take away tonight? What in this chapter of God's Word can convince us, can convict us of our faith from Hebrews chapter 3? I think we've got to turn back to verse 6. I intentionally skipped over this to save it for the end. The second half of verse 6, it says, Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And then look at verse 14 as well. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Here in these two verses, in verse 6 and verse 14, I believe we find some of the greatest ifs in all the Bible. The greatest ifs in all the Bible because number one, we see that we are a part of Jesus' house, of the house of Jesus. If, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Secondly, we see we are partakers of Christ. If, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The question tonight is, are we a part of His people? Are we a part of the people that Jesus saved? Are we a part of the people of Jesus? Do we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing hope? Do we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast? And do we do it to the end? Notice the endurance that it takes. What does he say in verse, both of these verses? Verse 6, he says, to the end. What does he say in verse 14? To the end. It takes endurance. The writer is trying to emphasize the fact that to be a Christian, we have to have Christ sovereign every day of our lives. Last week we talked about that, right? Christ has to be sovereign in our life. But this week we're talking about how it has to be every day day of our life to the end the writer would say you know when we think about that it's not enough to believe sometimes it's not enough for us to be obedient sometimes isn't it easy to be obedient sometimes to believe sometimes to listen to God sometimes but what about when it's not as easy what about when it's not as, as simple? It becomes a whole lot harder, right? I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say it's not enough to have confidence in Christ when everything is good. It's not enough to have confidence and to rejoice in Christ at the beginning when you first come up out of the water. Well, duh, you're going to have confidence in Christ. He just saved you from your sins. But what about next week? 
What about next month when the temptation comes? Are you still going to be rejoicing? That's what the Hebrews writer is trying to say. Do we at the beginning of our life in Christ, as we are babes in Christ, are we all fired up, jacked up for Christ? I'm going to go on mission trips. I'm going to study with some classmates. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to evangelize. And then what happens? All the likes from our social media from the, from the mission trip have, have quit coming in. Uh, it's awkward to talk to somebody at work, and so we're done. Until the next mission trip comes, or until you know, something else happens. A gospel meeting happens, then I'm, I'm fired up again. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you must do this to the end. Not bemoan the rest of your life, all the things you're missing out on as a Christian. Let's think about the Israelites for a moment. You know, there were times that the Israelites loved Moses. The Israelites loved Moses when he came and brought them out of Egypt at first, right? Here's this guy, that we've been in bondage for 400 years, and all of a sudden this guy is going to convince the Pharaoh to save us, to, to, to let us go. They love Moses. Guess when else they love Moses? When they were able to win battles because his arms stayed up. Yeah, we're, we love Moses. Look at that. They love Moses when they get to the, when they get to the, 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 the sea and he, goes, he holds his rod up and it splits and they're able to get saved from the Egyptians. We love Moses. But what happens when he says, God is telling you to do this and you're not doing it right? Ooh, I don't like Moses anymore. What happens when he says, we need to be satisfied, we need to be content with the manna that's coming from above? Oh, I don't like Moses anymore. They loved him when he was delivering them, but they did not love him when the times were not as easy. The times got rough, the food got boring, the heat got hotter in the wilderness, and it got tough, and they resented Moses for having delivered them in the first place, did they not? They said, we want to go back. At least we would have had all the... And they list this weird names of food I would never eat. We want to go back to being in, in, in the Egyptians. In bondage to the Egyptians. They hardened their hearts. They rebelled. They tested. They tried. They went astray. They didn't know God anymore. All the things we talked about earlier. They, knew not, they no longer knew the Lord. What's the parallel to us tonight? It's the same with us sometimes. We love Jesus when times are good. We love Jesus when we come up out of that water, right? We love Jesus when He delivers us from our sin and our transgression. But then we turn out resenting Him when He asks us to obey Him when we don't want to. We love Jesus when He says, you know, judge not, you be not judged. We love Jesus when He promises a home of heaven. We love Jesus when He does this, that, and the other that's so great and so happy and so loving. And Jesus, Jesus just wants me to have abundant life. Wow, Jesus is great. But then He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're my friends if you do what I say. You can have one woman, one man for one lifetime. Matthew 19. I don't like that Jesus, some might say. I want to select certain things that Jesus said, but I don't want to do all of it. When things get tough, when things get hard, when Jesus says something we don't want to listen to, we would rather be back in bondage to our sin than to be with Jesus. Or else we wouldn't choose the sin in the first place. Sometimes we wind up resenting Jesus for saving us. And we want to go back to the bondage of sin, back to the bondage of the devil, back to our old life, our old self, and live a few days as that guy again, and then I can repent on Sunday and have the Lord's Supper. It don't work like that. 
The writer of Hebrews is saying you've got to hold fast, steadfast to the end as followers of Christ. Even though Jesus delivered us from the things that we have left behind, we want to go back sometimes. It's exactly what the Israelites did, and that's what they wanted. But if we go down that road, what is going to happen to us? The same way the Israelites had no rest in Canaan, in the land of promise, we will have no rest in the land of heaven, in the bosom of God. Sometimes, I think the, the writer of Hebrews sometimes is trying to tell us it's not good enough for us to realize that Jesus is better than our idols sometimes. It's not good enough for us to hold fast and to be steadfast sometimes and on some issues. When it comes to political beliefs, boy, I'm going to really hang my hat on these two. When it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to abortion, I will die on this hill. But when it comes to certain other things that God does not approve of, ah, it's all right. I'm not going to share anything about it. You know, our, our, our show comes out on Netflix that everybody wants to delete it over. What about the other 5,000 shows that's on it you shouldn't be watching? It's not good enough to be standing for Christ and standing for God sometimes. And that's what I believe the writer of Hebrews is trying to say in this text tonight. The question also for us tonight is, are we going to be a part of the house of Jesus? Are we, are go, are we going to be a part of those who partake in Christ? Who is Christ? Hebrews 12 tells us He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. I'd like to thank you for your attention tonight. Uh, well, next week we're going to be discussing how Joshua provided a pretty good rest in the land of Canaan. But it's nowhere compared closely to the rest that Jesus provides in heaven. That's going to be from Hebrews chapter 4.